Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 25, and it's an extension of Matthew 24, which we dealt with last week, which is a section called the Olivet Discourse, in which we are talking about the end of the age, the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus. And so today's passage, as well as next week, is a part of the same literary unit that began with last week in Matthew 24. And so before we get into this week, um, we want to do a little bit of review of last week so we can kind of see the full context of what's taking place. Now last week, if you were here, incredibly difficult passage, one of the hardest passages uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the entirety of the New Testament to interpret. This week is a little easier, but it has, its own, it has its own problems as we'll see. Some kind of translation problems, some missing information, but we'll, we'll get there in a moment. So. Review from last week, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now again, remember the context, Uh, the hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious establishment has been growing and increasing and it's like at the the maximum level it can get and this is sort of the final straw. When Jesus says, you see this temple, it's all going to come down, every stone will be taken out, that's it. Like there's no going back from that. And the reason is, is that the temple, according to the Bible, (laughs) is the house of God. It is the place where heaven and earth meet. It is the most sacred site on earth. It is on a sacred mountain. It's on a sacred location, and it's a sacred sanctuary where the presence of God would uniquely and profoundly manifest so that he might dwell with his people. Jesus says, it's all coming down. And that's the point of no return. It is a cataclysmic level event for that to occur, which no one would think would ever occur again. So immediately, the disciples, they're hanging out with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. There's this panoramic panoramic view of the entire temple complex, and they come to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they want to know, when's this all going to go down? Now, the, the tricky part here is the disciples ask a question, but if you look at it closely, there's actually two questions involved. One question is, tell us when these things will be. In other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And then they immediately follow up with that question with what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the tricky part here is that for the disciples, they most likely did not separate those events. If the temple were to be destroyed, that would obviously be an event tied up with the end of the age and the second coming of the Son of Man. So they saw those likely as one thing, one event, or certainly two events that were closely related. But Jesus is going to answer these questions and he's going to demonstrate that that's, that's probably not the case. They're looking at it the wrong way. The difficulty is that for the entirety of Matthew 24, Jesus is answering both of those questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed, which it was destroyed in 70 AD, a few days after the prediction of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus. When is the destruction of the temple and then when is the end of the age and when is this the son of man coming again? So for us to simplify, When's the temple gonna be destroyed and when's the second coming? Now we walked through the entirety of that chapter and you saw it's very difficult to kind of see what's applying to what. So briefly, you might remember this. 
Jesus begins answering that question with this. Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, incredibly important to note, Whenever these passages are talked about, especially uh, this one, but entirety from Matthew 24, oftentimes verses are just ripped from the whole kind of context of the chapter and the context of the question that gives the answer. So people will say things like, do you wanna know when the end times begin? Where the Bible says there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There's gonna be famines and earthquakes. And if, if you, you, you remember, you have to read it slowly and, and actually follow Jesus' words because Jesus is not saying when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, the end is here. It's the opposite, which should demonstrate um, how what we want the Bible to say. Sometimes when we read it, we just enforce what we want it to say rather than slowing down and letting us hear what it's saying. Jesus doesn't say when there's wars and rumors of wars, the end is there. He says, don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. In other words, in the normal course of human history, there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, there's gonna be false teachers that take advantage of these things and try and make you think that it's the end. Don't be alarmed, the end is not yet. And the reason why this is so important is it's, it shows like the predictive and prophetic nature of Jesus' ministry. Like, for... Jesus isn't proving any kind of, he's not setting up some prophecy to be fulfilled if he says there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars. Because all throughout history, that is the case. Anybody could have said that. Jesus says, when you see that, don't be alarmed. But then he gets specific, in, incredibly specific. He says, do you wanna know when things are about to go down? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So in the course of human history, there's gonna be these things, don't be alarmed. People are gonna try to take advantage of those. But let me tell you, when you see this thing, this abomination of desolation, run for the mountains, get out of Jerusalem, get out of the whole southern region of Judea. Now, it's like, okay, great, that's a very specific thing, Jesus. What is the abomination of desolation? So Jesus is referring to, and Matthew winks at the reader by saying, let the reader understand. He re, he's referring to a prophecy that the prophet Daniel gave roughly 500 years before the time of his speaking. And Daniel prophesies about a future event that lies between the time and ministry of Jesus and the book of Daniel. And he, he calls this event that's gonna happen this abomination of desolation. And it occurs in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, a foreign invader, takes over Israel, takes over Jerusalem. There is a mass slaughter. There is instances of extreme brutality. It's grotesque, it's evil. But the climax of that is Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 marches into the temple, into the Holy of Holies and desecrates it by changing the worship from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the worship of Zeus and he sacrifices pigs in the name of Zeus on the altar. Jesus says, when you see something like that happening in Jerusalem, run. Now, leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there are actually a few events that sort of could have fit that. 
So in 40 AD, the emperor of Rome, Gaius, uh, commands that a statue will be built in the temple and the statues of himself. So he's gonna put a graven image of himself, the emperor, in the temple. Now, uh, lucky for the Jewish people in 40 AD, unlucky for Gaius, he was assassinated in 41, the statue never was built and put in the temple. But it was, it's like a signal, like stuff's heating up. This, this kind of desolation stuff's about to occur. Additionally, in 67, 68 AD, there is a kind of breakout of fighting between Jewish factions that are also simultaneously fighting Rome, and blood is spilt by the zealots in the temple complex. So Antiochus shed pig blood, now there's human blood being spilt in the temple complex. Totally a sign. Also, it could be referring to the fact that just Rome was going to come in and invade and desecrate the place. The point is this. There were numerous signs that all could have been abominations of desolations leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Those who trusted in the words of Jesus saw those things and they fled Jerusalem before the Romans came in and conquered this. And we know that many of the first Christians who were in Jerusalem fled to a city called Pella in the mountains because they trusted the words of Jesus. They said, when that stuff starts to happen, we have to get out. Jesus says, let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. When you see those things, Jesus is specific, when you see abomination of desolation stuff taking place, you run for your life. And many of the first Christians did. And they did so in time before the Romans came and the Romans implemented siege warfare. So they surrounded the city and no one was able to escape. In other words, there was a point of no return. And if you didn't heed the words of Jesus in time, you were surrounded. And the siege went on and Rome was successful. Then, as we saw, Jesus switches things up. And this is likely probably where Jesus now starts answering the question, when is the end of the age? When is the second coming? And you get this hint because Jesus was very specific, abomination of desolation, when you see that, get out. And then all of a sudden there's this switch. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus gives you an image of the second coming and he's like, nobody knows. It's gonna be like the flood in Noah's day. It'll just come upon you and you, 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 you better be ready because there's no time to prepare. Now, last week we said it, there's an interesting note. Jesus says, no one knows the time or the hour, not even the sun. Now, theologically, many people have given re- many responses to kind of understand this because Jesus is God incarnate. He's the son of God. And so he is 100% man and 100% God. So the way many theologians look at this is that Jesus in his human nature is growing in wisdom and stature. The Bible says that in the Gospel of Luke chapter four. He gets hungry, he gets tired, he feels pain. So in the human nature, some would say Jesus has certain things veiled from him, but the divine nature would not have had that veiling. So there's theological answers that people give out which are certainly fine, but there's another possible understanding we'll get to by the end of this. 
Jesus gives us the image of the second coming being like the flood of Noah. And then he's gonna follow that up with a couple images and parables describing his second coming. And we're just gonna look at this one parable today. It's called the parable of the 10 virgins. And I'm gonna read it to you in its entirety. It's not long, it's relatively short. And then we're gonna go back and kind of break it down because if we're honest, it's, it's kind of a weird parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Bridegroom's a fancy, it just means groom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay. It's a little strange. It's a little strange. So there's some problems. Uh, In order to understand this parable, we have to understand some things about a first century Jewish wedding. That's problem number one. The second problem is we don't know from the historical data a lot of information about a first century Jewish wedding. They're so common, they're so important, they're so sacred that everyone just assumes everyone knows what there is to know. So it's not like, hey, people are gonna forget how this works, so we better write it down. It's like just everyone, they know. So that's the problem. But what I wanna do is with the information that we do know from literature around that time period and cultures that are similar and near kind of create a composite picture of some of the things that likely are occurring in a first century Jewish wedding because they'll help us make some sense of this. Okay, so first. um, For a wedding to occur, there was a betrothal. And the betrothal period is similar to our engagement period meaning there's a couple and they agree to get married and now they're engaged or they are betrothed. Uh, In first century Israel, the parents would have been involved in that decision making too. It wouldn't just been um, the young couple who think they obviously have the whole world figured out and don't need the wisdom of mom and dad. Um, So it was much more of like a... So the betrothal period though was stronger than an engagement period. It was legally binding, so to break a betrothal period, you actually had to get something equivalent to a legal divorce. So it's engagement, but it's stronger than that. It's very strong. To get out of it, you'd have to do legal action. You couldn't just say it's off. Okay. In the betrothal period, the groom, the bridegroom, the groom, goes and is preparing the residence, the dwelling place for he and his bride. He goes basically to his father's community. Sometimes you would call it the father's house um, because he would be building something near his family for he and his wife to live in. Once he was done building and all of sort of the preparations for the wedding were made, he would go to the bride's place. 
And there, there would be young women. It's translated 10 virgins in this passage, which is a fine translation because the idea was that they were young girls who were un- unmarried. So the, uh, like a, maybe a sort of equivalent English word is young maidens, but they're, they're young women who then are a part of the wedding ceremony. They're not quite bridesmaids, but they're something like it. So you can just picture that. And they're waiting for the announcement. The grooms, the, the, the preparations are done, the groom's coming. And then they would join in this kind of procession that usually took place at night where you would lead the bride to the groom's house where the official wedding and celebrations would occur. Now, um, this is like the happiest day of these people's lives. Um, Jewish culture took weddings very, very seriously. There's some evidence to say, um, we know with certainty this was taking place a few hundred years after the time of the first century, so it may date back to the first century, but for like the week of the celebrations, because it would be an ongoing celebration, it wasn't a small event, we'll talk about that more later, um, you would call the the bride and groom prince and princess, because it was like the whole community was gonna take part in this, it was that big of a deal. Now, uh, the husband, the groom, when he was away, he was going to build a dwelling place, a room for them to live in. And a typical kind of first century Israelite home, it's, it's mud, stone, and brick. There would be two floors. Don't think of like some amazing two-story house. It's like the, the first floor has got the, the donkey coming into it, man. So it's like, <laughs> it's not great. But it's very modest. So uh, the husband would be building maybe something like that. Uh, near, his, near his father's residence where his village and his community and his people were. Now, one of the interesting things is that there's a significant amount of archaeological evidence uh, that shows that some people, especially in the region of Galilee where Jesus was from, that they would live not in sort of like individual units, but they would live in sort of this communal insula type of dwelling place. And the idea behind it is this. Rather than have individual units that are spread out, you would have sort of these units connected, and then there would be a a larger common place for the people to gather. And so when the groom goes away, he might literally be building a room onto his father's house, and then the bride and him would would go and live there, and they'd start a family, but there's just this giant communal space, and it changes the way you live, like, completely. Like, you can just picture that. Like, think about... When, if, 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 if you have children, if you've had children, you know there was um, a time where everyone just leaves. Like, it's, you're, you're at home for the first time and maybe a parent is there or something like that, maybe there's someone there to help, but there's a point where people leave and all of a sudden it's just mom and dad in the room and there's no one else. Now, on your first child, you might remember, this doesn't apply to everybody, but most people. For your first child, that moment, because you got adrenaline going, everything's good, and then everyone's gone, and it's just a young couple, and you go, dude, where'd every, we're gonna do the rest by ourselves? <laughs> like, we've never done this before. And it's not like it's a small activity that doesn't matter, it's like we're in charge of a human life. And for the first, the first one, you know, many people, I did, of course, it's like, are they breathing? And you check that every 15 seconds. Are they breathing? How do you know they're breathing? You put your ear there. Think about the communal setting. Yes, they leave, but they don't leave. If you need an aunt or an uncle or a mom or a dad 
hey, they're, they're literally like, hey, come back. This baby's crying. We don't know how to do the rap right, man. <laughs> Completely different way of living. Um, by the way, if you go to Israel today in Capernaum, there's one of these insulas, and very early on in church tradition, they believe that that was actually the house of, of Peter. And so there was churches built there very early on, and you can kind of see the stone kind of foundations of these insula-like communities. Okay, so no matter how the the husband was preparing a place, he was preparing a place, whether it was a small kind of separate unit or it was directly connected, it was a communal living on the the kind of land of of the, the groom's community and the father's place of residence. Once that was prepared, again, the, proce- the procession would take place, it'd probably take place in the middle of the night, and you would go in there, there'd be these ton- 10 young girls who were there as a part of the celebrations to sort of escort the bride to the wedding. Now, we mentioned this briefly earlier, but the wedding is like a super celebration. Um, people obviously from the community are coming, but if there's relatives from far away, they, they took great pains to get there. So it's not one of those weddings where like, you just get one meal and it lasts three hours and then you go home. If people are coming and traveling far in the ancient world to get there, it's gonna last a few days and likely these lasted three, four, five, up to seven days. It's like seven days of celebration. It's, it's incredible, it's amazing. It's, it's the greatest day of these people's lives. They're calling them prince and, and princess type of thing. So it was a great day with much celebration. Joy would have been through the roof. Now take all of that with us to this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Okay, so the announcement is made. The announcement is usually made by the father. All the preparations are made. So you can see why... um, in the parable, the, the young ladies kind of fall asleep. They're waiting because the announcement isn't made till everything's ready. And it's not just like one meal's ready. All the, there's multiple days of celebration. And so you don't know when this is finally going to be ready. So there's this kind of waiting in anticipation. The dad makes the announcement. The groom goes. And then you hear that the groom is coming. And these women should be prepared to then light their lamps and escort the bride on this special day to meet the husband. Now, another important note. Um, Part of the confusing part of this is the translation for the word lamp. Uh, The Greek word sounds a lot like lamp. And um, it's not a horrible translation to put lamp, but it's it's a little bit misleading. Because when you think of a lamp especially from this time period, you might think of like a ceramic jar with, the, with a wick and olive oil that's burning. Um, and you can build one of these for yourself very easily. The problem is with those, those actually last a few, you put five ounces of olive oil in a little candle, it'll last a very long time. It'll last all through the night. And in this one, there's like this, this idea that the, the lamps are running out of oil. What you need to picture is not lamps. They're not going out with little candles to start the celebration. They're going out with torches. 
So likely long sticks with like something like rags tied around them, soaked in olive oil, and then there's a big flame. Now this big flame is great because it lights up in the darkness and it lets the festivities begin, but the rate at which it's burning is faster than that little candle. So you had to be prepared with enough oil to last the night and last the procession to get to the celebrations. Now, five of these people, we're told, um, had enough oil. And five, they, they weren't ready. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Okay. This is the cry. Here is the bridegroom. Go out to meet him. The ladies wake up. Oh man, we forgot some stuff. And it says, as they trim their lamps. Now, again, this is where it could be misleading because if you picture trimming lamps, then you're thinking of these little candles again. You're not going to trim a torch. It's like you're going to trim a little candle wick. Now, here's the thing. The word for trimmed here, the Greek word for trimmed that they, tr- that they translate as trimmed is cosmeo. And if you kind of say that a bunch of times, cosmeo might start to sound like cosmos, which is where we get our English word cosmos. And you're going like, they cosmoed? They're, they're like, what's, what's the idea behind that? So the, the English word cosmos, the reason why we call the cosmos, the universe cosmos, is because it's ordered. Cosmos means to order something, to put order into reality. Now, out of the idea of making something orderly, like the universe, also comes the idea that in that order there is beauty. So the universe, the cosmos, in Greek the cosmos, is beautiful precisely because it's ordered. There's a design pattern to it. Now, if you take cosmos in the noun form and make it a verb, cosmeo, you are ordering or adorning or making something beautiful. By the way, cosmeo should sound like another English word, cosmetics to adorn, to order, to make beautiful. So the idea here is not that the virgins rose and trimmed the wicks of their lamps. They're ordering and adorning the torches because these torches are gonna be the light and beauty for the procession. So again, think big, big torches. Now, it's like, okay, is this just this random exercise in some weird Greek word so we can say they're torches, not lamps, no big deal, like what's the big deal? They had one job. (laughs) They had one job. And it was to have enough oil so that these big giant torches would give light for the celebration and lead the bride to the groom. This is the wedding day. This is like, you know, you lose the wedding ring as the, the best man. Usually someone gets uncomfortable because they did that, looking. So it's like, dude, you you guys had one job. It's like getting flashlights without batteries. And you have to understand the wedding is, this is a sacred event, not only for the bride, but for the whole community. There is Jewish literature, roughly contemporaneous with this time period, that talk about how even if a rabbi is teaching Torah, he can pause the teaching in order to honor 
or participate in the wedding. There's even evidence that ritual obligations were suspended during times of weddings because the, the wedding wasn't just a random act. It was a sacred sacramental celebration and union that God established all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. So for these young ladies to not have the oil for the one job is of great insult to the bride, the groom, their families, and the entire community. It is an absolute insult, a slap in the face. This should be the best time of this couple's life. Now it's interesting that the ones who were wise and had enough oil to like soak the torches in to get the lights going, they're like, we're gonna share with you guys. Now the parable doesn't tell us like, you're not supposed to try and figure out like, well, could they have shared and made it work? That's not the point. The point is just they're saying like, there's not gonna be enough. And then it ends, and while they were going to buy, they're going to go try to find oil in the middle of the night. Which, by the way, so you know, there's, like, there's actually like legit like scholarly debate about whether or not there would have been stores open um, for them to buy this. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I did not know you. Watch therefore, for you, neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's heavy, because it's, man, they weren't ready, and they don't get, they don't get to come in. Now again, what is, what is this parable about? How does it begin? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. There's these people that contributed, they, they didn't contribute anything. They, the only thing they contributed was a great insult to the bride and groom and the surrounding families. And they weren't ready and they missed it. And then they go and they can't come in. Now it's a powerful lesson because it's like they're trying to they're trying to buy the oil and the light of the other women, but there's like this lesson that's like, you can't borrow the oil and the light of someone else. You don't, you don't get to take their spiritual aptitude, their readiness. You can't live off their relationship with God type of thing. You have to be prepared. It's on you. Now, who is this parable for? Is an interesting question. Who is this parable for? It's possible, even though when we read the Bible, we immediately always interpret things directed at us, it's possible that this is a, an accusatory tale directed at the religious elite and establishment of the day. Jesus has been, if you remember, the growing hostilities between the religious establishment and Jesus, and he's been making these accusatory statements about, about them. He might be saying, to those who were given the responsibility of leading Israel, you were supposed to take the bride to the wedding. And you corrupt leaders did not do your job. You failed at it. You did not escort the bride properly. So it's possible to the religious leaders. Or it could be as we've seen Jesus looking at Israel and saying like, you were supposed to be the light of the nations. You were supposed to bring the Gentiles in. Or it could be to the whole church for us like directly today. Like you as an individual, just be prepared. You need to have the oil and the lamp ready. Now here's the thing. 
the beauty of many of the teachings of scripture and Jesus is that even if there's a direct, the, the message was originally directed at a certain set of individuals, there are still principles and lessons from that that apply to everybody. And that's, that's absolutely the case for today and we'll get to that in a moment. But first I want to uh, show you how this idea of weddings is woven all throughout scripture and we can spin a lot of time doing this, but we're just going to look at one verse I want to show you because um, in the Bible, God is constantly referring to himself as a groom and his people the bride. In the Old Testament, you see that where God is the groom and then Israel is the bride. In the New Testament, you see that same language applied to the people of God in the church. So th- this is a beautiful image. And, and it's not just here and there. It's like all throughout the idea of a wedding, the idea of a bride and groom coming together. So here's a verse from John that may or may not be actually using these themes of the wedding. Um, and if you, if you understand kind of some of the basics of that Jewish wedding and you import it to this text, some, some very cool things come to the surface. Very popular verse, John 14, two through six. This is the King James, 1611 translation. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. Does this sound familiar? I'm going to prepare the place. I'm going to come back for you and I will receive you unto myself. And that where I am, there, you may all, they, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know and the way ye know, Thomas saith unto him, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, why did I choose the King James translation? Because the first line says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Uh, The Greek word for mansion here is monet. And when the King James Bible was written in 1611, monet was not a bad translation. Monet meant something like a dwelling place. So in my father's house, there's many dwelling places. The problem is this translation has been so popular that after 400 years since it was written, we still kind of sometimes have that image. And the image that's developed by this translation is Jesus is going to heaven and he's, he's building you a mansion. You're gonna have a mansion. So heaven becomes the place that's imaged by materialistic, luxurious excess. You're gonna get your own mansion. But Jesus is just saying it's a dwelling place. And he might be employing the image of of this wedding idea. I'm the groom. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house. And think an insula. We're going to my father's house and there's many rooms in my father's house. And we're moved there so that we can dwell together. We can live together. The image of one is intimacy and closeness, not materialistic excess wealth and luxury. Do you see the world of difference? Now, the ESV does a better job. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The groom goes, but he's coming back because there's gonna be a wedding. It's going to be a wedding. It's going to be this great celebration. And it's this beautiful image. It's woven all throughout scripture. 
And so this parable serves as, as, it does two things. One, it warns us, but it reminds us of the joy to come. So it warns us in that um, if you're a Christian, uh, you ought to be ready. Don't be like those ladies. You got one job, man. Put the batteries in the flashlight. Make sure there's enough olive oil for the torches. Like, that's it, okay? But it's also, remember, the wedding is the event of joy and celebration. This is what awaits the Christian. And in one sense, if the Christian has rightly ordered their lives, you're not, you, you don't have to worry like, oh, do I have enough oil? Like, oh man, I'm just having enough oil. I gotta make sure I got the torch, gotta do the, the, everything right. Like, it's like, if a Christian has their life rightly ordered and God is on top, of course they're gonna be ready because they're always living in light of the return of the groom. The Christian lives in light of the second coming of Christ. Does, does the small child forget that Christmas is the next day? No, they've waited the whole month for it. Does the professional athlete forget he's playing in the Super Bowl the next day? No, because he's trained a decade for this moment. Does the bride forget that her wedding is the next day? No, because she's dreamt about it since she was a little girl. Likewise, how can the Christian forget their Lord is coming back? How could they forget that? This is the great joy we've been looking for. And it's funny, as, as maybe as you get older, you begin to, to look for the second coming of, of Christ more. I know that's certainly been true for me. It's like the more evil in the world you see, the more suffering, you, the, more, the more it's easier to say, come Lord Jesus. And when you're younger, uh, maybe you think you got so much life ahead of you and you're not aware of just how horrible this broken world can be, but there comes a point when you start to age and you say, come Lord Jesus, all the easier. Now, some of you may be saying, man, Isaac, don't talk to me like you're this old guy who knows about, like, bro, you're still the young guy. You don't know. Let me tell you about come Lord Jesus. It's like, <laughs> like it's, it's, I'm growing. It's, it's, all, it's all relative. We've got people all kinds of different ages in this church. We have some, we got some old people. Um, I mean, my, my, no, it's good. Uh, my, my father-in-law, let me tell you how much he once says, come Lord Jesus. He was there for the first coming. Uh, he was the little boy that brought him the little fish and the bread. And he'll never forget the kindness. He's been waiting for the second coming ever since. This is with joy we look forward to this. How could we forget? How could we forget? This is Christmas. This is the Super Bowl. This is the wedding day. But it's the wedding day of Christ and his people. And so Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 gives us some of these ideas and principles what to do as we wait. Don't be alarmed. Don't be fooled. Be prepared to joyfully suffer. That wasn't in today's parable, but it was in last week's chapter. And then know that the king who is coming is the groom. It's the husband how, do, how much does the bride long for the groom? How much does the groom desire the bride? Like, that's the image. Now, here's the truth for every single person in this day. Two inevitable things will happen to you. I was gonna say, this, well, there's, there's multiple ones, but because death and taxes are two, but there's also a de uh, death and the, or the return of Christ. Like, every single person in this room is going to experience death in their body or they will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So no matter when he comes back, you don't know the day or the hour. You don't know the day or the hour of your death. Now, in one sense, that's pretty bleak and gloom way to end a sermon. But in another sense, it's either death or his return, and then the wedding celebration begins, where you will go to the greatest celebration of your life. The groom has prepared a place for you, his bride. And so the parable teaches us to live in light of that ultimate reality. And if you live in light of that truth, it changes the way you live every single day. Now, we're going to transition to communion in a moment, but I'd like to connect some dots in the big biblical narrative. Um, this idea of dwelling places isn't just something that comes up in the New Testament. In Genesis, at the very beginning, God dwelt with his people. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God's dwelling place was with man. And then sin fractures that relationship. And then the scriptures tell us that God commands his people to build a tabernacle and a temple and that God chooses to dwell in that house. He chooses to dwell in that house and then he's surrounded by his people. God is dwelling with his people. That's what he was doing in Genesis. That's what he's doing in the temple. And then Jesus, in the first century, prophetically says, that house, every stone is going to come down. And it did in 70 AD. Now you could be overtaken like, this is horrible, which it was, it was horrific. But Jesus says, don't worry, because I'm building another house. I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I will receive you to myself. And then at the opposite end of the scriptures, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So saints, the groom's coming. The groom's coming, and he's coming for you, his bride. Let's wait in anticipation. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body. It's given for you. The groom lays down his body. He gives it up freely in order that he might save his bride. So let's remember his sacrifice. In those days, oftentimes there was a bride price. And basically the groom had to to provide something, and whether it was direct coins, silver, or goats and cows, we as modern people can look back at that and be like, oh, that's, that's so bad, it's like you're buying the bride. Well, there's definitely evil versions of that, but at the heart of it was this idea that if I'm going to raise my daughter, I want her to marry a man who will protect and provide for her all the days of her life. So the idea was, hey, young buck, 
you better demonstrate that you're going to be able to provide and care for this woman. So oftentimes there was this bride price. Remember, you were bought with a price. You were purchased by the blood of the Son of God. What did it cost? It cost God himself leaving heaven to come down here and dwell among humans and give up his life. He shed his blood in order that we might be purchased. And so we are of utmost value. So Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you to this day. We pledge to be a faithful bride until your return. Fathers, we transition now into worship. We want to sing of the groom, the great husband who was always continually faithful, faithful, true, and always. And so we bring worries and doubts and fears and insecurities, but we trust them to the faithful husband who is strong and powerful and is a provider and a protector who knows us and love us. May we worship him and give him proper glory and honor in our moments together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.